Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. We as health consumers are typically very focused on vitamins for our health. However, minerals are also a key supplement that are critical for our immune and general health. Iron, in particular, is a mineral that's embedded into every red blood cell in our body. But it has this sort of complex status of whether it's bad to have too much of it or... Is it bad to have too little iron? Or what is exactly the right amount some people should be taking? My guest today is Dr. Michael Auerbach. He's a clinical professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Dr. Auerbach is also a board-certified hematologist-oncologist that has a special expertise on IV replacement of iron to help reverse iron deficiency anemia. This at one time was very controversial but a lot of his work is showing this might actually be the first line of treatment. So it's with my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Auerbach to the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, let's get into this whole issue about iron because I think there's a lot of misconceptions, myself included. I'm here to learn because as you probably know too, so many general doctors are probably the first line dealing with patients that could potentially be iron deficient and they're fallback over many years was just to prescribe iron to patients. And a lot of patients didn't feel well. They didn't stick with it and it didn't really do the job. But my first question to you, Dr. Arbeck, is can you explain to the listeners a little bit the importance of iron to our health and, and clarify a little bit, you know, maybe the difference between what's good for men and women? It's absolutely essential for life. If you had no iron, you'd die instantly, not just because your red cells would have no oxygen to deliver to the tissues. But iron's necessary for the processes that give our cells energy. When we were in medical school, that biochemistry, the cytochrome oxidase system. But that's called non-exchangeable iron. And when you bleed, you don't lose that iron. But any source of blood loss or malabsorption will ultimately lead to iron deficiency, which will subsequently lead to anemia. Iron deficiency without anemia causes significant symptoms. Yeah, I want to go into that. But let me ask you like some specifics, okay? Because okay. I know you deal with obviously a lot more, sometimes the more complicated cases, but on a real basic thing, you know, a lot of times men have heard, you know, don't take a vitamin that has iron in it because iron can cause oxidative damage. Is that true? I mean, do men yes. still have too much iron? Yes, a man should not take an iron supplement for several reasons. First of all, it's noxious. Secondly, <laughs> it would be very difficult for it to cause iron overload. But thirdly, it might mask an early iron deficiency, which would only occur as a pathological event in a man. Where are you yeah. going to lose iron? If you were yeah. a menstruating woman or pregnant, right. you don't have to get excited. But if you or I are iron deficient, it's colon cancer till proven otherwise. Yeah, that, that's a very, very good point. Iron also, too, do you find its effect on immunity. I was reading somewhere too, you know, that iron actually goes down when we have an acute infection. So, I mean, does iron play a role in our immune system to, you know, keep us, you know, immune strong? I don't think so. I think cause and effect mm -hmm. that iron is, I mean, the, the low iron with inflammation is a result of the iron regulatory protein, hepcidin. I think that most of our listeners have never heard of but it's the protein that goes up when we don't need iron and blocks its absorption. And it mm -hmm. goes down when we do need iron. So our absorption and utilization are higher. There's a disease called hemochromatosis. We have too much iron and that's hereditary and they, right. they lack hepcidin. So iron is absorbed when it shouldn't be and ultimately becomes high. So let me ask you this too. I mean, again, and you and I, I guess I think I think we're in that range. We're old enough to remember when they used to be the Popeye cartoons, you know, and Popeye would flex that big muscle and uh, olive oil would feed him some of that spinach that was high in iron. So does, does iron really make you stronger? I mean, you know, if 
bodybuilders or I was just thinking before too, I was biking today and this was a gorgeous day and I have time between uh, patients on Zoom. Would cyclists have been smart to take more iron? Does it actually help performance? Well, the answer is not easy. You know, extreme athletes lose iron. Yeah. It's well known. Mm. And if you're iron deficient, iron absolutely makes you stronger. But if you're not iron deficient, it definitely does not. Okay. And you should not strive to have high iron levels. You should strive for normal iron levels. Okay. We're going to get into this in more depth, but I think you mentioned this a little bit too. But basically, though, being iron deficient for a prolonged period of time is not necessarily a good thing, right? It's not good for men or women. It's a bad thing for both. It's bad. Okay. We're going we're gonna to get into some more in depth about that. It doesn't have to be prolonged. No? Right. I had the miserable experience of having a bleeding ulcer five years ago. No, oh And I lost a lot of iron over the weekend. Mm. And, you know, being an oncologist, I was worried about stomach cancer. But when my gastroenterologist told me I had an ulcer, I was happy. He fixed right. the ulcer and I gave myself intravenous iron. Wow. Well, the nurses who work with me gave me intravenous iron. Until then, I was exhausted. Right. Just, right. And this happened over a weekend. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I do remember off the top of my head also, I had a case where a gentleman I was seeing initially for chronic urticaria because I do immunology and allergy and uh, some general medicine. And it's interesting, I cleared up his urticaria and he came back to me like a year later. He was a young uh, you know, in his th- early 30s, finance guy, he just got up at five in the morning and he worked the whole day and everything. He goes, I can barely get out of a chair. And I was like, this is not good. And we did some general bloods on him. And sure enough, he was very anemic, iron deficient. And unfortunately, it was uh, related to a colon uh, cancer. So yes, you know, you're making a lot of really good points. Another general question before we get into the really hard hitting stuff you know, again, people always used to hear, you know, about, you know, increasing their iron naturally. I mean, we have supposedly iron fortified foods, cereals, which aren't necessarily the best foods for people, but people assume that they were getting enough iron from that. Are there any foods in particular that, again, if somebody said to you, Dr. Auerbach, I, I want to try to do this naturally, how, you know, and maybe they're not too deficient. Uh, are there certain foods that you would recommend, like red meat or, you know, spinach? Well, organ meat has the most iron, but a, a lot meat. of foods with iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, red meat for certain. Uh, there are a bunch of vegetables that have iron in them. And it's certainly a wonderful way to maintain adequate iron is to eat a healthy diet. But if you're a woman with heavy periods or pregnancy, yeah. you're not going to get it. And when we get into, you're not going to get enough iron. And okay. when we get into taking iron, right. I will, you know, I'll try to carefully point out that the swallowing of an iron pill raises the hormone that blocks iron. So it blocks its own absorption. So it looks now that we're going to change our entire paradigm for the treatment of iron deficiency with one tablet every other day becoming the new standard. That's really interesting. Let me ask you too, and I'm sure you maybe see this. I see this frequently in New York because I also do holistic medicine. I see a lot of vegetarian patients and they quite frequently are iron deficient. And we'll talk about the labs that show that. And uh, along with B12 in a lot of cases too. Is it because they're not eating red meat? You know, know, again, a lot of these are women too, obviously. Well, yeah, that was my next question. I, I think that when a woman is iron deficient, to blame it on nutrition you're going to be wrong well over 99% of the time. So let's if you take a, a healthy high school graduate woman, yeah. just healthy, who uh, is menstruating, 17, 18 years old, and you do a bone marrow, there's a 58% chance you have no stainable iron. That's no other questions asked. Woman, 18, marrow. So most 18-year-old American women are iron depleted. They don't have good stores. If we were to move to Africa or India or under-resourced countries where parasites and malnutrition really are big deals, that number goes way up. Mm. Why is so iron deficient? Because of the menstrual cycle? Yes. Mm. Yes. And then pregnancy. Is there something they could do? Because also I see women athletes. You know, now there are a lot of women athletes, the cross players, cross country runners. 
let's say, you know, you, would, you, you know, one of those came too early on, or let's say a sports team came to you and said, Dr. Auerbach, how do we help these young women? Because again, they, they probably will get to symptoms in a moment, you know, that we prevent this. What, what would you recommend that they do? Well, I don't think you can add to an iron sufficient woman iron that will increase energy. Okay. But a female athlete should definitely be iron replete with a normal hemoglobin. This nonsense that a, a hemoglobin of 12 is normal for a woman, especially a young woman, I think borders on ridiculous. You'll see a significant improvement of energy if you bring the hemoglobin from 12 to 13 and a half, maybe even 14. It's recommended that we try not to push it higher than that. Because how would you do that? And how would you do that? How would I go higher than 14? No, how would you get, how, let's say the girl, oh, a young woman who's a cross country runner in the Baltimore area near you and the, the track coach said, Dr. Auerbach, you know, I'm a little worried. She seems really tired more, more than typical for my, my runners. And you evaluated her and her hemoglobin, as you said, is 12 or something. And, and she's iron deficient. I guess let's say yes. She's you know. We'll I have be- to say yes because otherwise I'm no, stuck. Let's say, no, let's say she's iron deficient. You know, okay, so, like, so she's not anemic and iron deficient. What would you do for her? Would I would you- give her intravenous iron. You would. Okay. Yes. All right. We're gonna get. She's to an athlete. There's yes. greater than a seventy percent chance that oral iron is gonna upset her stomach. Sure. These yeah. are not my numbers. These are high quality meta analyses showing a clear incidence of gastrointestinal side effects. Right. No, it's it's compared to nothing compared to IV iron. And um it's real. It's real. It's a huge problem. I talk to also friends of mine who are general practitioners. They are very reluctant to prescribe iron. And you know, you know, these women are suffering. They are suffering. Yeah. There's and they have symptoms that doctors don't ask about. Right. Right. 50% of them have restless leg syndrome and pairing. Yeah, that was like my next question. Can, okay. can you really, from your experience too, because again, you know, obviously you're bringing a specialist eyes to this. That's why I have you here as one of the smartest doctors in the room. What are the symptoms that you will try to elicit to know if a patient is on? Sure. Besides looking, obviously, at the labs. Okay, so I, besides fatigue, yeah, right. A craving for ice is is classic. Yeah. It's called pagophagia. Oh, I thought it's it called that craving for dirt. So it's craving for ice, no, thank God. No, it's no, but it depends. That's cultural. If you find an African woman, oh, really? he's more likely to crave dirt than ice. All right, so craving for ice. So that, let me tell you what I've seen. You ready? Besides ice, paper, clay, dirt, toothpicks, rubber bands, Argo and Niagara starch, baking soda, fabric softener sheets, what? Uh, cornstarch, uncooked what? pasta, uncooked rice. Obviously, you have this memory, man. Why, why these very weird things? No, is this just Not, a- no but so, I don't know why, but what <laughs> bothers me more is these people who have been having these cravings, it's not rare for a patient of mine to come in with a quart of ice that she picked up at a Royal Farms or really? 7-Eleven wow. to, to chew it during the visit. But the craving goes away in the middle of the infusion. So wow. that, and I have no idea why. And I, was, I mean, I think that's a very, you know, again, like, you know, when I've interviewed Lisa Sanders, you know, who does the medical diagnostic conference in New York Times. And that to me, you know, would be like a great like story, you know, where a patient came in, you know, and wasn't feeling well, whatever, but just was, you know, was nibbling on ice during the visit that, and, you know, the, the telltale and we're going to get into also too how iron deficiency can be you know the other causes but okay what else uh physic on physical exam you know I, I love physical exam what else would you be looking at to, so we uh, you, we didn't get you want to skip restless oh, no, legs no 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 continue no give me the rest of your so that's a big deal that's an inability to keep your legs still at night yes it is yes so, yeah, they got to get up and walk around mm. it's brutal for couples it's brutal for sleep wow it makes people miserable and the medicines Pramipexol, which I think is Mirapex, and the other is, because um, I don't prescribe these medicines, uh, Ro. Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, one, one is Mirapex, which is Pramipexol. And um, the other is like a neurological drug, isn't yeah, it? So, but, but so is Mirapex. Yeah, right. Okay. And they're prescribed routinely, and they work a little, but they are sedating. 
Right. They have a fair number of side effects. Iron gets rid of it almost immediately. So if you have restless leg syndrome and you're iron deficient and I give you IV iron, there's a 90% chance you're going to be better in 48 hours. Wow. Wow. That's big for hopefully a lot of our listeners. I know that people you know just put up with this sometimes, but it's definitely a... It, uh, it's a big deal. Oral iron works a little, but nowhere near as well. We're doing a double blind, double dummy study right now. I hope to be finished with that soon which will, I think, close the coffin on this, uh, on this topic once and for all, that IV iron should be standard. So if, if you're iron deficient, you have restless legs, you're going to get better. But if you have restless legs and you're not iron deficient, it's very unlikely the IV iron is going to help. So look at this, iron deficiency, 50% restless legs. A woman with restless leg syndrome, 90% iron deficient. I'm sorry. Would, well, and what would you ask the patient? Just so I, I, it comes up. So I've had people like circle and question like, so literally, is it just at night or during the day that just their leg is like bouncing around? It's usually at night. It's inability to keep them still. I ask them if they sleep with their significant other. And if they okay. do, I said, does that individual complain about your legs moving all the time? Uh-huh. So if the answer to that question is no, restless leg syndrome is likely not present. But you can say, do you have trouble keeping your legs still at night or do you have to get up to walk And it could around? be both legs. I mean, I know this sounds silly, but is it both legs or is it could be one usually leg? usually both legs. Usually both legs. Okay, that's really... They're actually criteria. They're called the Willis-Eckbaum criteria Okay. for, for restless leg syndrome. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. What about other things too? I mean, you know, sometimes I know people with hair loss, women also are very nervous. A young woman comes to me and goes, I'm losing my hair. And you know, I look at them and I say, your hair looks pretty good. <laughs> but they'll, they, you know, they know their body. They know when they're in the, they're in the shower and clumps are coming out. Is that well, something that you... N- not as much. It, you know? Typically, that when I see people who are iron deficient with hair loss, sometimes they get better. But more often than not, they don't. Okay. But brittle integument, for sure. You know, the, the, the hair is brittle. If you look at the fingernails, you'll see horizontal lines. Mm-hmm lines that are parallel to the body or parallel to the finger. They're called coilonychia. And you can see them. They're, they look like rings on a tree, only they're straight. Right, right. What about the conjunctiva too? You look typically, I know that was- Pale. Yes. But that's, that's not iron deficiency. That's anemia. That, so that's already right. That's a- Yes. Stage, you right? get that with any kind of anemia. That's true. Okay. And what about the, what about the tongue? Is there anything- Oh, thank you. Jeez. That's, that's probably the most important part of the physical, but since we're not, we're not video, I can't right. show you this, but the tongue has little white dots all over it. They're normal. They're called papillae. Right. They disappear in iron deficiency. I have slides of uh, a very severely iron deficient tongue and then slides later after treatment, how the, how the papillae come back, but that's classic. I look at the tongue on hundred percent of my patients and I keep a mirror in my exam room uh, for them to look at their tongue so I can show it to them and then they can watch it get better. And what, and what is essentially, it's like very shiny because the papillae are gone or? The what? No, they're, it's just smooth and red. Very smooth, very smooth and very red. Mm-hmm. Well, tongue is red. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, I see a lot of people that have, you know, overgrowth of bacteria on their tongue or, you know, this yeah, well, that's so, Tongue is a whole thing that we didn't get enough I think uh, training in all of our medical schools, our dental colleagues, but it's quite an important way to make a quick visualization. Oh, you bet. The glassy yeah. tongue is, is, is really classic for iron yeah. efficiency. Okay. Let's talk about, before we get into testing, I want to talk about different diseases that cause iron deficiency anemia. And as you mentioned, you know, men, you're always concerned blood losses, you know, from the GI tract and women were concerned about menstrual you know, heavy menses. Okay, those are the cl- you know typical class of ones. But I was reading in one of your articles, which, and I've seen this in patients, you know, the few that I've seen for other reasons, like, for example, bariatric surgery. Oh, yes. Bypass. Because, again, you know, these patients go in, obviously their main concern is being over, oh, very overweight. Mm-hmm. They go in for the procedure, they lose a lot of weight, and then a few months later, they're not feeling so good. So mm-hmm. can you discuss a little bit about that, like how, why they become... A significant number of them are, are iron deficient when they go to surgery, especially women. Within five years, almost 80% are iron deficient despite oral iron. I have to th- I think it's tragic 
And if I offend anybody with this comment, I no, really that's don't. why I have you on. Yeah. You don't hold any punches, and I really like that. I think I hope I, I, I absolutely don't else. care. But the American Bariatric Association has oral iron as its frontline therapy for iron deficient after bariatric surgery. Right. First of all, I consider it cruel because it upsets. It's extremely irritating to the GI tract. It causes an overgrowth of the wrong bacteria. But in the stomach, when a normal person eats iron, it gets conjugated to vitamin C, amino acids, and sugars to protect it from that massive alkaline rush that occurs in the pancreas that's necessary for digestion. Right. And if the iron is not conjugated, that it gets converted to ferric hydroxide, which we know better as rust, which cannot be absorbed. I, I, it defies the smallest amount of common sense to me that the, recommend, the frontline recommendation for a patient who has undergone a ruined Y gastric bypass should be oral iron. And we're also doing a double blind, double dummy study in bariatric patients of oral versus ID. And then if you want to ask me, why am I subjecting these patients to a 50-50 chance of oral iron? If we don't do this study, we're not going to change the guidelines. And up to date, you know, I write the section for treatment of iron deficiency. The editors let me say that ruin why patients should not get oral iron, but I cannot get the American Bariatric Association to agree with that. And they don't typically recommend the surgeons, you know, they don't really get too involved with that, right? And they do the surgery. Are they monitoring these patients? Or- oh, yes. Yes. You know, mineral and nutrient monitoring is routine after bariatric surgery, but I don't know how many bariatric surgeons in the United States routinely refer their patients to hematologists for IV iron. I have have over 400 in my practice. Wow. You know, would would sublingual iron work, by the way? Because I discuss this with different vitamins and nutrients with patients of mine because you bypass the GI tract. Is there there such a preparation, like a liquid iron that would go? I know, unfortunately, you have to watch out because it can make the No, the liquid iron will go down you know, to be absorbed in the gut. Even if it's done sublingually, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you have to swallow it. Oh, okay. Well, and mean, I'm not aware of sublingual iron. Yeah, boy, you, I, I'll bet you that would make one mess in the mouth. Well, that, I think that's, you know, like, for example, I have some people that are, sub, you know, who are B12 deficient, and we actually mm. get pretty good results sublingually. Yeah, absolutely. Different right? story. Totally. I, I prescribe sublingual B12 but, all the time. But I think I know also, too, you know, this is interesting. I remember patients that brought this up. I used to use, like, a little... Low, you know, before I know about your work, I used to give patients low dose liquid iron, very low dose, because again, I was worried about something. But I, I remember reading, or somebody was worried, like their, sometimes their tongue or their teeth turn black or something, their gums. With liquid iron? Yeah. It can stain the teeth. Yeah. But it's interesting. You used to give them low dose. Low dose is probably a better idea, and not yeah. every day. No, yeah, yeah. We used to do it a couple times a week. It was like, uh, gosh, it was one of those. I forgot the Ger- Geritol? Yeah, well, it wasn't that, but it was like a company that, you know, promoted it. All right, let's go on to something else, too, which I think is important, too. Like, you know, ironically, like acid-blocking drugs that people use for ulcers and stuff like that, too, like omeprazole. Problem? Yes, absolutely. Because? Indefinite. No question there is a relationship between these drugs and intravenous iron. I, I I just reviewed a manuscript on that topic. It is much more likely for someone who's taking one of these proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers to become iron deficient than someone who was not. It's a very good question. It's real and it needs to be. Uh, I think, well, you know, because one of the things that's been coming to the forefront now, people realize it's really sad. I mean, I try to get people off those as much as possible. I mean, I, I think I see its place in acute management, but when people are chronically on these, there, as you know, their pH changes in the gastrointestinal tract. They don't absorb a lot of other minerals and, and vitamins and things like that, too, that their system should. And there's obviously other side effects. But, you know, yeah, it makes sense. Let's also talk about something you brought up in one of your articles, which I think is really important. Inflammatory bowel disease, you know, things like Crohn's or also colitis, where patients are, you know, iron deficient anemic due to their underlying pathology. And again, replacing them with oral iron, as you mentioned, not a good thing. Well, they're, they're iron deficient because they bleed. It's and then they have inflammation. Oh, from the inflammation, they, right, right. They bleed. They bleed from the gut because of the inflammatory bowel disease. The inflammation of the of the gut inhibits the utilization of iron independent of bleeding. 
But if you have a patient with inflammatory bowel disease who is iron deficient, it, it is just flat out cruel to give them oral iron. It is directly toxic to the intestinal lining, the epithelium, and it worsens the IBD independent of anemia. But in the GI literature, their literature, not mine, they have shown that oral iron in patients with inflammatory bowel disease causes an overgrowth of the wrong bacteria. And they say that it negatively alters, and the term they use is the microbiome. Right. And these folks are miserable with a very difficult inflammatory disorder. In 30 minutes, I can do what a year to a year and a half of oral iron would do with enormously superior efficacy, enormously lower toxicity. And again, like with bariatric surgery, it defies my sense of common sense why anybody would want to give a GI patient with inflammatory bowel disease oral iron. Mm. Um, I never do. Um, I give them intravenous iron if they're anemic or not anemic, and I follow them regularly to make sure they remain iron sufficient. Okay. What about also you mentioned about chronic kidney patients? Now, uh, we know that for a long time, I guess, the, you know, with the new advent of Procrit, right? The yes. Well, erythropoietin, because you have, you have Procrit and Aranesp, which is Darby Poet. Okay. But they, they're the same drug, only one Darby Poet works longer. So those I know are used because obviously chronic kidney patients. Okay. Become, That's um, a different story. Right. They're anemic. But I think you mentioned, though, but these patients would also benefit a lot from iron. No question. Yes? Yes, because they have what's called functional iron deficiency or iron-restricted erythropoiesis, which is the term for blood production, or you know, what we learned as sort of an anemia of chronic illness, the inflammation from the kidney, the, the, the kidney disease itself raises the patient's hormone that regulates iron. So when you have chronic kidney disease, this hormone, which we've named before as hepcidin, goes up, iron absorption goes down, but iron utilization goes down as well. When you give oral iron, enough does not get in to overcome this block. But when you give intravenous iron, it goes directly into the circulation, onto the protein that carries iron into the bone marrow, and also into the white cells that act as a reservoir for iron in our body, so that there's iron hanging around for a while. And it has been shown clearly, if you give IV iron to patients with chronic kidney disease who are getting erythropoietin, you can use much less of the much more expensive erythropoietin, and you get to your target much faster. Mm. There's no doubt. That's dogma now. And, and, and do these patients feel better clinically? I mean, do they? Enormously. Yeah. Absolutely. What about with cancer patients? Or it does depend on the type of cancer? No. It, it, some cancers more than others, but it's the, it, it's the same answer. Okay. We did the first study of intravenous iron in patients who had, cancer, who, were, who had anemia with cancer chemotherapy or cancer. And we randomized to... Um, oral iron or intravenous iron, and all patients were getting erythropoietin. Okay. So every, this was the first time it was done in oncology patients. We published it in 2004. It was a clear benefit for IV iron over oral iron for the exact same reason I just told you in kidney failure patients, except that cancer patients don't have as much a reduction in the hormone that makes blood as kidney cancer patients do, but they do have a reduction. Okay. What about, you mentioned, this is kind of interesting, and I didn't know this at all, like mountain sickness. Um, oh, is that and, cool? You know, and it's interesting because, you know, people are always worried. They go, oh, I'm going <laughs> up to Colorado. I'm going someplace skiing. Right. I'd say it's around, it's around 16, 15, 15 to 16,000 feet. Yeah. The work comes from the, from the brilliant physiologist at Oxford University, Dr. Peter Robbins, it's his lab that came up with this information. And the first paper I saw was in the journal, it's Altitude Medicine, mm -hmm. I believe. And the paper was written out of Dr. Robbins' group. The author was Talbot. And um, when you give iron, 
I'm not an expert on this, and we certainly don't want to get too physiologic because the terms get unwieldy. But when you give iron, there is a sensor in the pulmonary artery that is sensitive to oxygen, and the rise in pulmonary artery pressure when oxygen goes down is abated by intravenous iron. There is a score called the Lake Louise score. Lake Louise score, okay. Lake Louise score. The higher the Lake Louise score is, the more severe the mountain sickness is. And IV iron versus placebo clearly block the rise in the Lake Louise score and people ascending to more than, I think it was 4,700 meters. The study was done in Machu Picchu in Peru. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I've always seen it on pictures. But is that the kind you also you would do it preventively or once a person was sick? Well, you could do it either way. So it's not the standard. No, you wouldn't give it to someone who's sick. It should be done preventively, I believe. I actually called Dr. Talbot. My son went to the Himalayas. Oh, wow. And um, I called him. I said, look, this is my boy. (laughs) I said, don't give me any choices. I don't want to hear any. Right. explanations. If it's your kid, mm-hmm. what do you do? He says, I give him a gram of iron before he goes. I said, well, that's what we're going to do. Oh, wow. Okay. And he All didn't right. get mountain sickness, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's move on to the, the laboratory test for iron evaluation, especially also, I'm going to ask you about this versus uh, iron deficiency versus iron deficiency anemia. You know, again, using your uh, hematology expertise, uh, because there's some basic tests that every doctor, <laughs> I think on the planet, who, you know, gynecologists, internists, family practitioners are all ordering these tests. These are very standard tests that are easy to get. But I think, you know, I know even for myself, I, and I, actually I was trained by a fantastic hematologist in, when I might train at Columbia, but you know, that oh, you, who? Cause I did my, um, I did my fellowship there. Oh, did you? I, uh, well, uh, John Olichney. He worked with Harvey Weiss, who's also a very famous platelet. Har- Harvey Weiss was already downtown. Yeah, we, we have Roosevelt. Roosevelt, yes. John Olichny, you must have been there much after me because he was not there when I was there. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, you know, look, look I'll just, I'm going to go through a couple of things, but I want you to explain it. Okay. So that we really understand it. And hopefully the listeners, I know this is going to get a little technical now. It might be for, you know, you have to you know, go with it. So, okay, obviously... Things like serum iron, which, you know, would seem to make sense. Like, oh, God, if someone's iron deficient, they must have a low serum iron. But that's not always true, correct? It usually is true. But serum iron by itself is borderline useless. Yes, um, I, see, I see it normal all the time in patients. We're going to get to some of the other tests. Right. But it's, well, it's normal. Serum iron should always be ordered with what's called the TIBC or iron binding yeah. capacity. Right. Always. So it is the percent saturation, the serum iron divided by the TIBC, and 20 is the lower limit of normal. So if the, if the total iron binding capacity is less than 20, patient, that's, that's diagnostic of a need for iron. Interesting. Now, does that have to be, is there some kind of conversion that has to go on? Or you just literally take the numbers that you get on the lab and you divide it, and if it's less than 20, it's consistent? Yes. Yeah, no, yeah, but you should do it on an overnight fast. Because if you get it and somebody took a vitamin with iron in it, the serum iron is going to be falsely elevated. Or if they had had meat from their breakfast, you may be getting a serum bacon. So so the iron is important. Even with food, it should be fasting. Overnight fast. Overnight fast. Okay, that's a really good point. Okay, what about, and this is a big one for me, is ferritin, which, you know, again, I've learned and taught, you know, it measures the iron stores in the liver and the bone marrow. It it, it measures the total body iron stores. However... It's yes. a problem with it. If the ferritin is low, you're done. Iron deficiency, nothing else. Well, okay, let's say, also, what is low? Less than 40, less than 30? Less, less than 30. Less than 30. Yes, there's a 92% likelihood of absent marrow iron, a 98% likelihood of absent marrow iron in somebody with a ferritin less than 30. I see. I think that's a very important test. So I'll tell you why. Again, I was just looking at somebody's labs today. And we're going to get to somebody we discussed even before the, we went on this podcast. But I had a, a young woman today whose serum iron levels are totally in the normal range, but her ferritin is 18. She needs iron. Yeah. Um, But her serum iron levels in the normal range with a ferritin of 18 
is because they're not being done on fasting samples. I guarantee you. Is that what they, it is? Okay. I'm sure. Okay. All right. This but, is- but Farron has a problem. Okay. Farron's, if Farron's okay. low, we're done. Well, well it means iron deficiency. I'm asking your opinion too. Would you say, because I know you probably work with medical students or internists, would you say that obviously the average internist is really even that aware of that? Like we'll say, you know, they would pick that up, that, you know, a patient with a ferritin of, let's say, 20, you know, because a lot of, you know, what happens is also, it doesn't get flagged a lot on the uh, range, you know, that a ferritin's low. It's not like it pops out. I think the sharper ones do. Yes. But that's not the problem with ferritin. I think that low ferritins are picked up pretty quickly by their doctors, and more and more labs are calling 30 the lower limit of normal. Okay. Problem with ferritin is the same problem that we have with the iron regulatory protein, hepcidin. It goes up when you're sick. Okay. Virtually any, any type of inflammation, obesity, postoperatively, bariatric surgery, diabetes, cancer, pneumonia, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis. I don't need to keep naming them. Illnesses make the ferritin go up. Okay. So you can have high ferritins in an iron deficient patient who has a low percent saturation of transferrin on an overnight fast, and that individual needs iron. We're going to have a new test soon. Some of the autoanalyzers already have it. It's called the reticulocyte hemoglobin. It is in reticulocyte what? What's it hemoglobin. called? Okay. The reticulocyte hemoglobin. And when the reticulocyte hemoglobin is low, it tells you that the patient needs iron. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't differentiate between the absolute iron deficiency and that, that functional iron deficiency I just described. But it tells you who needs iron and who does not. And that can be obtained in 40 seconds on the autoanalyzer, so you don't have to wait for the lab to come back with the iron, total iron binding capacity and ferritin, which usually takes one to two days. Okay. And what about, well, we're going to get to this too about the smear, but what about the MCV, the mean corpuscular volume? And for our patients, you know, this is like the size of the red blood cells, mm-hmm. how they appear. And again, you're a hematologist, so you're used to looking at sl- under the slides. Doctors typically get just printed out reports. Does that take a while for that to get low? Yes. Um, so that's, that, yes. that's not an early stage. Not at all. Most yeah. iron deficient patients have normal red blood cell size. They do. So that's not as helpful. Okay. Yeah, but if it's low, it's certainly helpful. There yeah. are not, not many things that cause low besides iron deficiency. But in Italians, I'm sorry, Mediterraneans, right. Italians, Greeks, Romanians, Indo-Chinese, Sephardic Jews, Blacks of African ancestry, there is a, a disorder called thalassemia. And it, when I see them, they have thalassemia minor and they rarely anemic and they have very small red blood cells, but they right. can also be iron deficient. But once you've ruled that out, small red blood cells are almost exclusively due to iron deficiency with rare, rare other causes. Mm. Last one I'm going to ask you about because I want to move on to treatment is, um, and again, this is a little technical for our listeners, but when hemolysis, when blood blood cells are being destroyed, which can be due to an autoimmune effect or it could be due to an infection, that also can give you uh, iron deficiency anemia. And is there a certain test that you look at, like a Coombs, you know, some kind of specialized blood test to help with that diagnosis? Well, if the reticulocyte count is not elevated... I normally don't chase hemolysis in iron deficient patients. Chronic hemolytic anemia that has been going on for a long time can lead to some iron lack. But typically, patients with hemolytic anemia have high iron because the iron's released into the circulation oh, right, and right, it's delivered right. back to the bone right. marrow. And then when the bone marrow is loaded, it goes to other stores. Right. So while hemolysis in some circumstances can lead to iron deficiency, it's typically not what we think of. Okay. Well, now we get to the meat and potatoes of today's uh, podcast, you know, your specialty. I wanted to get to treatment. And again, as I said, I was like so excited. You know what I really found out about you? I was, I like to read a lot of journals and I was reading a JAMA article. I think actually it was a letter to the editor or something you were writing. Yes, about the bariatric patient. I think so. You were having a, a, a uh, active discussion with some of the other authors, uh, you know, Again, you know, putting your point about doing IV iron versus oral iron. I remember it struck me. The author had the last word. Yeah, they did. And it's perfect. I mean, she was perfectly entitled to disagree with me. Right. It just makes her wrong. 
Well, <laughs> uh, I mean, there, it was her, her, the author, her admonition that this patient should get oral iron is just flat out incorrect. The patient was a RU&Y patient with a severe anemia who had both iron and B12 deficiency. And frankly, I think it was extremely clever of this author to make the diagnosis of both and replete both. But she should have given the patient injectable B12 and intravenous iron. The patient would have gotten better much faster, wouldn't have had the GI side effects. And um, that's why we're doing this double blind, double dummy study. Yeah. Well, I, it, what caught my eye, honestly, was, I, as I said, I was just always struggling in my practice of helping my patients that were, for sure, iron deficient, not as many iron deficient anemia, but iron deficient. And it got me thinking because, again, I was, I've been always on the lookout for preparations, you know, to help my patients because I also see a lot of patients with the, that generalized chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's just, you know, a lot of them just are iron deficient and you know every you know like like a car you're trying to take care of every you know possible angle to you know to maximize these patients but let's talk about it so again i what you talk about in your articles and this again too was pretty eye-opening for me because again when i trained back in the 19 late 1980s 1990s we would occasionally see a patient come in i remember it's interesting i had a patient with fanconi's anemia an unusual like anemia i think a mediterranean descent some patients but, you know, this woman was coming in for oral iron, but it was like a big deal. It was like, we, we got to watch this patient. She could have a severe allergic reaction called anaphylaxis. And Wait, you know, oral iron? No, 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 from IV. Oh, you, you, you said oral iron. IV iron from her gastroenterologist that was following mm-hmm. her. I, I remember all this vividly. See, it's remember what you remember in residency. It's like it really strikes you. And I was like, IV iron, that's a dangerous thing. It and doesn't cause anaphylaxis more than any other intravenous right, well, drug. It's extremely you know, I'm just saying, this rare. Was, this was what, again, you know, you know how you get, you're very impressionable during your training years? Yes. So, you know, I go out into private practice and, you know, all my years, I was like, hmm, you know. We're trained incorrectly. The medical <laughs> schools teach it wrong. Okay. So, anyway, so tell us now why IV iron is safer now and better. You know, again, as I said, you're the expert on this. You know, I have your article here in front of me. I've just been glancing at. Tell, tell the listeners why they, you know, would consider this, or they should bring it up to their doctors. Because again, many times patients have to be their best advocate and say, you know, I, I've heard on this podcast by Dr. Mitchell and or that maybe this is what I should get. So maybe tell to the listeners and they can explain to their doctors why IV iron is a safer and better choice these days. Well, it really never was as dangerous as doctors thought it was because okay. they, there is a minor reaction to giving iron, and it's due to the iron. It's believed to be due to a complement-mediated reaction. It's called pseudoallergy. It goes away in a few minutes. It's typically pressure in the chest or back or flushing in the face or on the skin, tickling in the throat. It goes away. It can frighten the patient, reaction. but if you tell them, it's like a flushing reaction. It's yes, an infu- we call the minor infusion reaction. Like, like with, well, it's like with vancomycin, your patients get something like that, that red man. Well, that's well tar- it, no, it does, that doesn't happen with IV iron. But okay. doctors for years thought this was impending anaphylaxis, and then they would come along and give Benadryl or epinephrine, and they turn this harmless, self-limited infusion reaction into a hemodynamically significant, serious adverse event, and the iron gets lame. Okay. We now have four new formulations worldwide. The oldest of these is low molecular weight iron dextran. There used to be a product called dexferum or high molecular weight iron dextran that had the highest incidence of serious adverse events of any of the formulations. And it was removed from formulary more than 10 years ago. And I'm glad it's gone. Low molecular weight iron dextran has been around since 1991. And then you have three new irons that have very complicated carbohydrate cores that bind the iron. One of them is ferromoxetol, also known as ferrahine. Another is ferric carboxymaltose or injectifer. And a new one that was just approved in the United States, but it's been around in Europe for a while, is going to be called ferric derisomaltose with the brand name monoferric. And all of these drugs allow you to give a full replacement dose in 15 to 30 minutes. 
So let's say a patient came in and decided, okay, I don't want to take oral iron. I'm iron deficient, iron deficient anemic. And I'm going to see Dr. Arabak. I'll come in to get the IV infusion. How long is that going to last me for? I mean, will I be, will I have to come back again in a month? Will I have to be well, good? That's not, that's not an answerable question. If it's mm-hmm. you and you had a bleeding ulcer and it's fixed, right. it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Okay. If you're talking about a patient with ongoing blood loss, you have to tell me what the ongoing blood loss okay. is. There's a okay. milligram of iron per milliliter of blood. Well, well, let's say it is actually, let's say, let's go back to that young woman, that young athlete, you know, who's you know, very fatigued, not doing well. So how often would they? Yeah, so you'll get a maximal response, anyway, actually two to four weeks, probably. Okay. So and then with some of the newer irons, up to eight weeks. Mm. So would it be very variable then how often they would have to get these? Totally, injuries? totally. If this, if this athlete also has heavy periods, right? if the periods aren't controlled, she's going to need iron frequently. I have to, I mean, you, you know what uh, OWR is? Osler Weber Rendu or hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Yes, yes. That's all right. Right. So these people are born with blood vessels that leak right. all the time. And right. I have some of them where I was giving them iron every two weeks, every three weeks. Every four weeks. Oh, because it depends on how much the blood loss is. Absolutely, but it's ongoing. They're bleeding all the time, so they need me as a gas station. Yes, that makes sense. And do you have a preference on any of these preparations? Is there one that you use more frequently than others in your practice? They're all excellent drugs. I I use a lot of ferromoxetol. I use a fair amount of Infed and a fair amount of Injectifer. Okay. Okay. And, And Monifer is not available. Yeah. And you said it, it, it will be in November or December. Okay. Okay. On a different note to uh, Dr. Arabic, I, I have something I'll maybe mention, but you know, do you have like also a very interesting case that you might, that comes to mind, you know, that was like interesting or surprised you when uh, you evaluated their iron deficiency anemia? Oh God, there's so many. Are there? Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to share one of mine for a second and then, uh, and then maybe it'll give you an idea. You know, I, I was uh, in my first years of pra- private practice, and I was seeing a patient for a chronic asthma. And, uh, you know, like a lot of times, too, a lot of times the patients would sometimes, you know, ask me about, also I was doing some general internal medicine at the time as well. And she was, besides her asthma, she was like, I'm really tired all the time. My joints hurt a lot. just don't feel well. So I, I did a, you know, blood evaluation on her. And she came back clearly anemic and appeared to be uh, iron deficient anemia. She was in her mid thirties. She was menstruating, uh, you know, and I was concerned and I actually referred her to a colleague of mine who was working in the same suite of offices who was an internist, but also a hematologist. And he actually trained at the NIH. He was a really bright guy and he saw her and he started her on oral iron and a few months go by and I was seeing her for her asthma and she goes, I still do not feel better. I'm tired. Uh, I don't feel well. My, my joints hurt. And the patient said to me, and, you know, this doctor put me on oral iron. She goes, but and this was before the internet. She says to me, she goes, do you think I could have celiac disease? And she had really no GI symptoms. I said, that's, you know, that's not really what I, my, my understanding at the time. And that, you know, this was before 30 years of clinical experience. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, you might be right. Maybe you do. And we ordered some, you know, some of the antibody tests for celiac, you know, the gluten antibodies. And sure enough, she was positive and she ended up being, being, you know, examined. And, you know, after that, I was always the lookout, (laughs) you know, anemia. But you know what's more common than celiac? Like 20 times more common? What's that? Autoimmune gastritis. Oh, really? Well, celiac disease is definitely a cause of iron deficiency, and I have a bunch of them in my practice. Yeah. yeah. Autoimmune gastritis is incredibly common. I had no idea until I reviewed a paper by a professor in Vienna, Dr. Christoph Geishi. And it's, it's an, a very underdiagnosed and common cause of iron deficiency. Autoimmune gastritis. Is there a test for that? Like, is there a certain, mm-hmm. like, against the, any of the An- cells? Anti, anti-parietal cells. Anti-parietal? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that I was again the antiparietal cell? I thought yeah, I thought that was for like gastric cancers. No, no, no. So does, it, does anything come to mind? Any yes, uh, but your listeners are not going to know what this is, but you will. You'll find it fascinating. I had a pregnant lady, okay. iron deficient. 
Okay. Elevated retix, elevated LDH, okay. haptoglobin of zero, okay. bilirubin of three, okay. iron deficient. Okay. All right. Direct Coombs negative. She did not have an antibody on her, you know, that we picked up with the Coombs test. And for the first time in my life, in this pregnant woman, after looking for hundreds of times since I became a hematology fellow, this woman had PNH. And this was just a few months ago. And that, that, that stands for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria that yeah. your listeners have never heard of before, but it's a fatal illness if untreated. Wow. And, a, and a new medicine, which is now the standard, uh, called eculizumab or Soliris, completely turns it off. Is it more common in pregnancy or does it just happen to come out? In it is so rare. It's not more common in anything. No, no, no. no. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, just yeah. the I don't think so. Trained, one of the hematologists that trained me actually came up with a test for it, believe it or not, Dr. Karanis. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I know Dr. Karanis. Yeah. But what test did he come up for PNA? I believe when he was at Cornell, he was telling me that he, in his fellowship, I think helped discover. Well, the ham test was one. I can't and then the acid hemolysis test was the other. I think it was the I think it was that one. I, I, I it mean, could be. Funny. These are things but, I remember from residency. But, and, but you know how to diagnose it now, right? No. <laughs> you, you just send a, you just send off the PNH essay. Oh, is you, that right? Yeah, and you I, get the yeah, uh, things get easier. Mm-hmm. Well, as we start to come to the conclusion of this very interesting discussion, uh, was there anything else you'd like to? let the listeners know the importance of the iron, you know, for yes. men, women or what's an ideal level. Anything you'd like to share? This is the commonest malady on the planet. There's almost 3 billion, 30, 40 million Americans have iron deficiency and iron deficiency markedly impairs performance. Most primary care physicians are not aware of the ease of administering intravenous iron, its safety, and it's not on their radar. If patients know about it and they say, what about intravenous iron? It's not expensive therapy. The overwhelming majority of my patients get a complete treatment the day they meet me. I do my consult and I order the iron if I have the tests that I need before the patient arrives at the office. Well, that's really great to know. Dr. Auerbach, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this podcast. Um, it's a pleasure. Your knowledge and experience and you know, your contribution to the literature and helping patients who suffer with iron deficiency and have not realized that IV treatment can, can really change their lives. And for our listeners, if you have any questions, please go to my Instagram or Facebook site, Dean Mitchell MD, and we'll try to answer as many questions as possible. So thank you again for your time. It was really a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me. Okay. Be in touch. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.